and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with the Queen of the Foulmouth Supper Club, co-director of the British Library Food Season and now author, Melissa Thompson. And I think food is a really good way to talk about difficult issues because you can get everyone sat down around a table eating and then you kind of like bring it on to almost like sneaking it in through the back door. Her debut cookbook, Motherland, is the story of the Jamaica that was her father's family home. As she traces its history through its food, she uncovers the stories of its people, its struggles and its resourcefulness. I asked her what it feels like to hold her first book in her hands. It's quite crazy because the book is how I imagined it. It's kind of the book that I pitched and even the title, which I thought was going to be a working title, I thought someone came along with a better one and actually like Motherland works really well. So it's just, it's just quite nice. I guess it's like a bit of a confidence boost, right? You have this idea and then it becomes realised and, um, and I'm just really pleased with that. I'm just, I feel very lucky to, to be in a position to be able to tell this story. Yeah, and you always were in the position to tell this story, but you kind of didn't know it. And I love that process. I love the way that food helps you find out who you are. I mean, you know, you're one in a line of many, many people who have trodden this path. Uh, Pitching a book, it's like bringing together all the things that you are and all the journey so far uh, into a kind of narrative that pieces together. We'll go back to your motherland in a minute. But you know, you were a journalist, you were a supper club host, cooking Japanese food. Yes. How did you get from Japan to Motherland? So doing a supper club and doing Japanese comfort food, it, it, like everything just, I, I never had a plan and things just happened. And the reason I cooked um, Japanese food is because my sister-in-law um, made karage chicken for me one day. She's Japanese and it blew my mind. It was so tasty. And then I would literally make it for my friends every weekend. Um, for, it felt like a run of maybe two months because we were, we were obsessed with it. And I would take all the ingredients around to their house, make it, we'd eat it. And then I saw a sign for a, um, it was a course on how to run a supper club. And, and it was on a whim. I booked onto this course. It was a weekend course. And then, and like, you know, I, mean, I guess I was, how old was I? Almost 10 years younger. And I guess it's that kind of the, the, the arrogance of youth, right? And I was like, I'm going to start a supper club. Um, did a trial run for my friends. That was great. And then it just, and I, and I just did it. And I, you know, I think the first time before the doorbell rang or when the doorbell rang for the first time and I had strangers coming to my house and I think I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to have strangers coming into my house. They, they paid to, for me to cook for them. And so then, and then it was, it was with this theme. So kind of the, the Japanese comfort food that I cooked, it was, it was like karage chicken was always there, but then it was always other, um, stuff as well, like getting into smoking. So like doing sort of smoked miso short rib and things like that. And then I, and then, it, and it kind of grew, um, just by itself, really doing it you know, into a pop up and then into, um, into residencies when I left journalism. So, and so th- that was never the plan. And it kind of just almost ran away with me. And then, and then it was almost like, right, what, where am I going to take this now? And then I got pregnant and, um, for the first three months of, of being pregnant, I was in the kitchen and it was just the worst thing, like the, the nausea, the exhaustion. Oh, so I took a month off and then I never went back to it. And so then I, um, you know, and then I was, when I had my daughter, because obviously I had to leave the cooking behind and that had been my main source of income. So I started doing bits of writing um, and trying to kind of get it back. Um, and then when lockdown happened and I, you know, cause I, I was always cooking Jamaican food. Like that was always kind of you know, part of my repertoire. Like I love food from all over the world, but obviously Jamaican food kind of has a very special place in my heart. And then when lockdown happened, I was kind of cooking, um, a lot of Jamaican food, like more than, you know, I think it was looking for comfort. In fact, it was even before then, I think. So I remember doing, cooking a lot of oxtail. So before lockdown, like kind of just like, I guess regaining my, 
love of food because pregnancy had really destroyed it and it really kind of ruined my ambitions with the with the the pop-up because I, I just couldn't stand food like I was I, like I was off so many things all I wanted to eat was chips chips and vinegar that was it <laughs> and um and then I kind of built it up and I guess when you're trying to reconnect to food you maybe gravitate towards the the foods that you find most comforting and for me, that was a lot of Jamaican food. And then, and then kind of like lockdown happened. And, and actually I was trying to, I remember getting in touch with a publisher who I'd met at a supper club and messaging her being like, Oh, like that, that, that my friend's doing really interesting things in food. Like, I don't know if you want to speak to her about writing a book. And then she was like, well, have you ever thought about writing a book? And then, and, and I, I had obviously ideas of what could work. And Motherland was a book that I'd been looking for for a long time. Um, and then, yeah. And then, and then kind of that process began of, of me being able to write it myself. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, that is exactly how freelance journalism works, isn't it? You know, it's exactly that. Well, I'll have a bit of this and I'll try that. And, oh, I've met somebody who said that's such and such. You know, when you try and teach this stuff, as I occasionally do, and when people ring me up and say, well, could I talk to you about your career in journalism? I mean, it's exactly that, isn't it? There is no plan. You just have to yes. say yes to everything and yes. keep your ideas coming. And constantly, it's that energy, isn't it? And it's so wonderful. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic story, and I hear it so often. It's, it's very life affirming, actually. I love it. Well, I think it's about, it's about the love, isn't it? And I think a lot of people, like I get a lot of people saying, like, "How do I get to do what you're doing?" And it's like, well, you, you know, or how do I get into food writing? And it's like, well, where are you writing now? And they say, "I'm not." And it's like, well, you need to be writing because you want to, not because you want to write a cookbook, not yeah. because of any other reason you need to be writing because you want to and then and then when you follow your ambitions and you put your all into it then opportunities come out of that yeah it's wanting to communicate your passion about something yes. isn't it it's feeling on yes. fire needing to get those words out and tell people about it yes oh, god for instagram um <laughs> but let's take you back to the motherland so this is dorset um you know not necessarily the place that you'd expect to find uh, a jamaican dad and a maltese mum uh in a in a little town and no black community to be speaking of how did that happen so my dad was in the navy and um and then he ended up so my parents were in cornwall and then they went to hong kong for a couple of years and then there was a naval base on portland where my dad got stationed and so we lived on portland when i was really really young and then we ended up in in weymouth um because yeah just uh, that was it because of the naval base and there were i mean i don't i can't think of any other jamaicans who were living in weymouth at the time um there were a few other black people but i mean the west country is kind of it, it like there aren't I mean, still to this day i don't think there's kind of like a lot of people of color in the in the west country more than there were but not very many which can be a hindrance but for you it was a, a real plus wasn't it gave you a, a strong sense of voice and you had a voice anyway you were already a writer you went straight into working for the, for the local newspaper did you feel like a mixed race woman when you were telling those stories or did you just feel like part of the team it was it was interesting because I mean growing up I think I think especially looking back I think I, there was a feeling of like displacement in me because there were things like I remember my hair wouldn't swing like you know I, I mean I, so my hair ended up being chemically straightened for, for years and even in a ponytail like my hair wouldn't swing and I remember that as a girl really wanting my hair to swing and not kind of understanding why it didn't because there was, just wasn't any representation around me and then I went to came to London to study and I only was meant to be in Weymouth again for um, a couple like a couple of weeks to do work experience in my local paper because I was skint I was too skint to stay in London and so then um, and I stayed with my parents went back home 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 
And then I ended up staying for about th- about three years. And, and and I threw myself into into that job and did some food writing. But I also did a column called Bygone Days, which essentially was going around to older people's houses and sitting there for about three hours over a cup of tea, going through their old photographs and kind of like making these stories. And all of my friends, because I've got I still got a really tight group of friends from that time from the paper. And, and actually that stint in Weymouth made me fall in love with Weymouth because the, the feeling of displacement I had before, I didn't really like it. I never felt like I felt I, I fitted in when I was younger but then that period made me really love my home my hometown and my home county and um my friends would take the mickey out of me for this kind of like bygone days uh, column but I loved it because you could kind of create this story and I, I, I had a picture byline in the paper but it was black and white and sometimes I'd open the, open the door to sort of like a, you know kind of like a, a much older woman and I remember one woman was like oh like blimey like you do look like your picture and I think she meant it's like, oh so you are black because she couldn't quite work it out <laughs> um, and, and it was it was yeah like I think it was I, I mean I never had I don't think I had any hostility working there um, and it was just I guess for me, it wasn't so much about my background, but it was more about very much a, a sense of time and, and space. Being in that environment, like loving my job, partying quite hard, but working really hard. But also like the whole food, because um, there was a sort of a food column that started when I was there. And then I took over and, and it grew. And going to, um, like, I feel like the farm to table experience was almost like kind of really exciting to grow. People kind of caring about like provenance and like artisanal produce. And obviously the West Country is amazing for that kind of thing. So yeah. I'd like go out to, I went to an abattoir once and watch like cows being killed and watch the whole process like getting really close up to it and um doing loads of things like farming and um and like cheese making and um all sorts of stuff like that like going fishing and um and it was just a really magical time yeah so you were already writing about food and identity you just weren't writing about your food or your identity quite yeah so but you were looking at the atlas as a very small child and sort of imagining yourself into the stories that your father used to tell you you and he used to cook a lot of Jamaican food himself as did your grandma who was still living in north east England which is where they came from on on the Windrush yes yeah so they were part of the Windrush generation so they came in the mid 50s settled in in Darlington with my dad well not my dad stayed in Jamaica until he was nine and came over later so we didn't get to see my grandmother very often. So there was this kind of displacement between the food that you were loving, that your father and your, your grandmother were making, but this sort of sense of distance because there was this, this atlas that said where it had come from. Tell me about the earliest memories where you were sort of putting those two ideas together. I, I think that came more from the stories that my dad would that would, my dad would tell me because you know, as a kid I was really obsessed with mangoes. Like I love mangoes. But we couldn't, I mean, this is like 1980s, like Dorset. So we, you couldn't really get mangoes, not that I can remember. And, um, and so we'd go to London and we'd buy mangoes from there. But we were literally a, fa- a family of four and we would literally buy four mangoes and we would kind of savor those mangoes. And my dad would tell me stories about growing up in Jamaica. And actually, I think looking back, he kind of, he made these stories because he had a really hard childhood in Jamaica. Like there was actually quite a lot of physical abuse, but he would tell us stories about kind of, um, you know, climbing trees and just gorging on, on, on mangoes or, gorging on guava until he would fall asleep and then fall out of the trees and I remember 
as a kid being like, imagine so many mangoes that you couldn't even, you could just eat as many as the hearts desired. And, and, and so I was, I was just, that, that was a really kind of evocative image for me as a kid. So I just couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine, you know, we had an apple tree in the garden and just tried to imagine instead of apples, mangoes. And I used to think about how happy that would make me. Um, so that was the, probably the strongest thing that kind of like the most transportative memory, um, that, that, that I had as a child. Yeah. And also I have this idea of this very long drive from Dorset up to Darlington, you know, where at the end was going to be your grandma's fantastic curry. I mean, it's your first food moment, isn't it? The curry chicken. Tell us about that drive up to this food memory. I think it took like about six hours or something, which feels like an eternity when you're when you're a kid. And, and but there was always like the promise of like this curry chicken at the end of it, and you'd walk in and you could smell that it'd been that it'd been cooked, and, and it was always there. Like I, I can't remember a time that it wasn't. I think when I was very young, I, I would there would always be a hope that it was, and then as I got older, an assurance that I kind of knew that it would be, and. Um, and and it was just like one of the tastiest things. And because, I mean, my dad would cook curry chicken, but like, I don't, I mean, like it, it, he didn't cook it kind of like that, that often. So it was, it was a dish that I very much associated with Darlington, with my grandma. And, and then when I was, I, I can't remember how old I was. I was quite young and I just asked her, like asked to watch while she was making it. It wasn't this kind of like romanticized kind of like, you know, sort of grandma and, uh, and, and, and granddaughter sort of scene. It was just her, her making it right. Like this much curry powder, a bit of all purpose seasoning, onions, like your garlic. Um, and then this is what you do. Like a vegetable stock cube goes in and it's just, and then she would make it. And, 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 and it just seemed so straightforward for something that was so delicious. It was, uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And I don't suppose you would have thought to ask why Jamaicans were making curry uh, but you go into that in the book and that's one of the, the points of that first food moment is the background the people who've inspired this food and of course the curry as we know from the Riaz Phillips episode we had a couple of months back um, you know the, the curry came with the indentured Indian servants um, and you really kind of go into that a lot in your book don't you where did that bit of the history kind of pique your imagination I think for me it's it's um you know, like I've always been interested in the stories behind food and, and and all those things. Like you know, with food, with language, you know, you might have a saying that you kind of just becomes part of your vernacular. And it's like, and it's only when you think about it, it's like actually that is quite a weird saying. Like, why do we say that? And it's the same with food. It's like you know, you have ackee and salt fish. Like, well, like, what? Why is there this like tradition of curry in Jamaica? And um, and so it was just asking questions, like a natural curiosity, and then finding out things like Aki doesn't come from Jamaica. Like, and I thought it did, because you go to Jamaica, literally Aki's all around you. And, um, and then, yeah, with like curry chicken, um, and then sort of learning about kind of the indentured servants, looking at the massive influence from like uh, people from Western Central Africa who bought like, you know, like, um, like one pot traditions and things like that kind of their, their their skill in turning kind of you know um like the extremities like oxtail and things like that and even like you know dishes like rundown the the skills that that kind of could could take something like saltfish that the, the west india cure that was sent to jamaica that could be quite rancid you know and, and being able to make something delicious bami bami like the cassava flatbreads that you can read about them in in like 17th century texts even earlier and and even though the indigenous Taino kind of were were pretty much decimated by the Spanish, these these bami are still kind of widely eaten, um, and and that blows my mind. Like this kind of connection with it. So you know, when I'm grating cassava, 
to make them into Bami. And it's quite a laborious process, but it's like it just it instantly transforms me to those people who, who kind of their ingenuity made made food a dish or like a part of a dish or kind of, you know, that that has that has sort of survived, um, you know, centuries later. That has endured for so long and people still get a massive pleasure out of it. Yeah. The roots, despite so much uh, transience, so much... Uh, so much suffering um, yeah. that the food becomes very much rooted to who people are your second yeah. food moment the jerk pork tells of the, the the wild pigs in the mountains caught by the maroons the people who'd escaped enslavement to live in the mountains you know so the jerk pork again a typical jamaican dish comes with so much history tell us about that food moment i think learning the story of jerk i, I think like jerk gets kind of it gets so mistreated i think kind of in you know away from jamaica and you have different chefs like not giving it the respect that it deserves and i think people think that jamaicans are just like unnecessarily precious about it but actually it's because it's such a a dish that represents the, the resistance that is at the heart i think of so much jamaican food it's so important and um and and this idea of like you know people like maroons and sort of surviving taino and the fact that we get the word barbecue from the arabic word barbacoa and and then that kind of like you know union um, and capturing capturing these kind of like these wild pigs and then um, and then seasoning them as much for preservation as for as for taste and then cooking them like underground like wrapping them in leaves cooking them underground and um, and it's just it's just really like it was just really really clever and. Um, and then how that came down the mountains and then it began to be kind of sold commercially. And now like, if you go to Boston and it, like the bustle of it, the smells and it's just it's just kind of closing your eyes for a minute and trying to imagine like, you know, centuries ago, all of this happening and people kind of, you know, the, the Maroons making these kind of like camps up in the mountains in quite like inhospitable areas. Mm. But but having like a, a knowledge of farming and of the landscape because it was innate in the Maroons. Right. They like they, they were kind of farmers back in back in Africa, in West Africa. And bringing that skill and, and transposing that into the mountains of, um, of, of Jamaica and, and, and outwitting the British to the point where the British were forced to sign treaties. And so, like jerk pork, and, and then, you know, if you go to Jamaica and, and you eat the jerk pork and it's like the kind of the, the smokiness of it, it's so tasty. And it's, um, and I guess the jerk pork we have today is probably quite different to what there is, that, what there was back in the day, because it's kind of like, I think the, the flavours have probably been kind of, made more intense but it's still kind of that connection yeah absolutely i think it was kelpner wolf who was talking um about her book eat share love uh where she was talking about um burying the pork underneath the ground was to stop the smoke being seen yes yeah so the smoke wouldn't give away their location Um, and then after the treaty was signed then they could be a bit more open about it and there are texts um i write about it in the book where people kind of you know have a big bit of cooked pork and go around the town kind of like selling it to people it's incredible absolutely the taino people are the indigenous Jamaicans and you talk about their resilience and their resourcefulness and that's woven into Jamaican food culture that was that something that you discovered when you went on this fantastic trip in 2021 yes I I knew about the Taino before then um, and then obviously in my research I I kind of found out more and I think the the most striking thing for me is this narrative that we have in the west that a lot of indigenous people in the Americas died um, due to a lack of uh, immunity um, against kind of these new diseases that were coming from like from the so-called old world and while that was true to an extent, actually, a lot were, especially in Jamaica, in, in like the Caribbean islands, were they were they were like murdered or they were they were kind of enslaved and, and worked to death, given unattainable targets, 
for things to grow and and the spanish were really lazy and and, and that was even written by like spaniards who went out there and would like kill people for sport or they would ride them like like animals and um and then so finding out about these taino who were actually quite excited about about seeing these kind of like new people opportunities to trade and in columbus's first writings he was like oh yeah they seem really friendly i think we can convert them to christianity they would make good servants so he knew instantly what what their plans were and um and that kind of really upset me so i guess it's almost to try to give them a voice to try to humanize them and because so much of their culture was lost um, and, and they, they didn't have a written language. So the biggest eye-opening bits were the contemporaneous texts written by um, the very, like the sort of the Spaniards. There was like a Spanish priest who went out with them who was quite horrified by what his fellow countrymen were doing. And, um, and, and, and I really wanted to be able to tell that. I mean, because my dad was so annoyed when I was a kid if anyone spoke about Columbus in positive terms or that he discovered the Americas. And it was this kind of constant refrain, like, how can you discover something when people are already living there? Well, exactly. And you make the point that the colonisers made so much money through stolen free labour that it funded the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, n- not least in the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your third food moment is the Guinness punch pie, which shows the influence of empire the other way. Uh, so actually, Guinness is a is a really popular drink in amongst the West Africans. Yes, yeah, so, I mean Guinness basically followed the empire, so it's massive in West Africa and like Nigeria. I think it's like the second most popular alcoholic drink. I think, um, and then in um, in the Caribbean, uh, like you have like Dragon Stout as well. But I think like Guinness, kind of you know, and I think it's either either or. Like I'm either Guinness or I'm Dragon Stout, and um, and I love Guinness Punch. Um, my uncle got me quite drunk in it when I was a kid because I was just like necking it back. It's like it's it's so nice. And um, and then I love like a custard tart, and and I had the idea to make essentially make a, a custard tart, but like with kind of Guinness that is reduced down, and um, and it just for me it works really really well. I think it's it's really delicious. It's really I've made it so many times now that it kind of works, and so it's just me having a bit of fun because I guess motherland has your classic jamaican recipes and then there are also the recipes that are of my own creation over the years that i've just kind of you know fused different different um different influences on a on a dish i'm, I'm carrying on the tradition i mean like jamaican food is founded in fusion right all these different influences and it's just like me kind of carrying it on as a british-born person of jamaican heritage as co-director of the British Library Food Season, you know, you are absolutely in your element, aren't you? Kind of bringing all these wonderful ideas from all over the world, these rich, rich stories of food. Uh, tell us a little bit about your role there. So um, so I've just agreed to come back on for 2023. Um, so we had our first meeting the other day. And so working with Polly Russell, who's uh, um, who's the like with the Eccles, the head of the Eccles Centre at the British Library, and Angela Clutton, who you know, who's amazing, kind of amazing food writer and author. And together we, I guess, just try to think about conversations and events and people that kind of talk about all elements of food. Um, you know, whether it's kind of like issues or celebrating different um, different food cultures just kind of really kind of like delving deep into that like what makes food so wonderful um and so it was really nice because I've, I've worked with them um i'd worked with them a couple of years previously like presenting uh, or like you know sort of chairing different discussions and i had some ideas um that i wanted to put to them for events and then they came to me and said well would you want to co-direct it before i even had a chance to say anything wow. and so that was really exciting and then you know, I think with and, and my work with BBC Good Food, kind of like it's constantly trying to get new voices because I think for a long time, like food media has been quite inward looking, and and I think people can get quite complacent. They kind of end up talking to their friends, and it's kind of you know, and I can kind of understand that because especially we have, we all have pressures. 
but for me in food, like the most exciting conversation you can have with someone is, is listening to a story that you haven't heard before. Mm. Uh, and there are so many kind of untapped stories and people out there. So like 2023 food season is going to be really exciting. Like it, I, I'm I, like, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with people already and I, I am so excited for their stories to get kind of heard on a bigger platform because it's just like what people, like people who work in food and they're, they're just incredible. Yeah. And in different ways as well. I mean, the, mm. the launch event was with Andy Oliver talking to Dr. Jessica B. Harris. People will know her as the author um, of High on the Hog and on the Netflix version of it, who has actually written on the front of your book a masterful work and a must for any lover of food of jamaica i mean somebody like jessica harris i mean she has been around for a very long time she is a weighty name in food and what i love about what the food season does is it gets voices that are from the biggest world of food um and I love the kind of the inclusivity of, you know, age, gender, race, absolutely um, everything. Yeah. This is your debut book. I mean, finding it an angle, owning it in in a world where people are increasingly trying to put these stories of food and identity together. What was the thing that you felt that you could bring to, you know, a place that was already inhabited by people like Riaz Phillips and Jessica B. Harris, of course. Riaz's book came out a few months before mine. And so neither of us knew that the other was writing a book. And and yet, I guess it's about the food of Jamaica, but we kind of explore very different themes. Well, not very different. There are, there are themes that are still quite, they are quite different. And I, I think for me, there are sort of so many not myths or like yeah people talk about stuff all the time like the fact that Aki see Aki came over to Jamaica like people would wear them um, as like talisman or, like a sort of necklace and that's how Aki got to Jamaica and I couldn't actually verify that I think it probably was true but then I did find like the, the first recording like the actual the text that 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 recording w- that was made that it came over in 1778 on a slave ship the same with coffee. And so it's just building up this picture, I think, because for me, like listening to people's stories and then understanding the food. At first you might taste it. I mean, like, oh, kind of. A, but then when you understand the, the process of it and, and why it tastes like it is, the history of it, you're almost like you become kind of wedded to it. And for me, I think Jamaican food, you know, I think people don't know that much about it in this country. And and, and I, like, for, like me growing up with it, it's kind of like it's just it's just amazing and i guess it's just wanting to be able to 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 show it off but then also to talk about the history and and get like uh, get get this story in there and i think food is a really good way to talk about difficult issues because you can get everyone sat down around a table eating and then you kind of like bring it on to almost like sneak it in sneaking it in through the back door i mean riaz was telling much the same story as 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 you've told but his angle is that he's really quite angry that jamaican food is everywhere in britain it's right under our nose um he talks about for example nose to tail and he says you know that all his mates uh who he went to university with you know they were eating in london they were eating at st john or st john inspired food they were eating nose to tail food and he says that's jamaican food um do you have that same sense of anger as he has i i I wouldn't call it an anger I, i find it quite frustrating 
you know, there are, there are so many different things, like, like no-sell eating. And I've spoken about this with, like, kind of, you know, I, like, I, love, I love St. John. I love Fergus Henderson. But people almost think that, that, that that's the advent of no-sell eating. And it's not just Jamaican food. I mean, look at, like, sort of, like, the Chinese who've been cooking, like, the, and, and, and the racism that the Chinese community have faced for their approach to food because they, like, this idea that they eat everything. And it's like, oh, but when, um, when, a, like, when, a, when a cool Shoreditch restaurant does it, that's okay. But these communities around the world, like looking, look like across like Africa, kind of the idea of eating all of the animal. Like animals don't die in vain. Like we will make the most of it. We'll eat their tongue. We'll eat their like the offal. We eat the extremities, and um, and so that's quite. It's quite annoying that there's this kind of because there's, there's still this like dichotomy of people kind of still othering certain cultures for doing that, and yet really embracing white British culture for doing it, like veganism, right? Like you know, like like if an alien landed on the earth. And and learn about veganism in this country. They would think it had been invented by kind of like young white women in West in West London in like like ten years ago. And it's like, well, look at the Ital traditions. Like, look at like 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 kind of the the veg forward like uh, traditions of like South Asia and things like this. Like they've, they, you know, that that's that, it's always been done. It's always been done. And um and, and there are I think and the idea of like resourcefulness now like a lot of the conversations around it can be quite patronising or just coming from a position where people are like the people talking about resourcefulness and what sustainability about kind of saving money and they talk about it it's like oh you know when, when people talk about making soups and stuff like that i make soups and stocks but then at the same time it's it, like people approach it from like this whole like the whole kind of like circular thinking because actually in a in a in a an energy crisis like making a stock uses up a lot of energy and um but like the resourcefulness of like jamaican jamaican cuisine has always been like it's always been uh, part of it so actually I always want to say to people like maybe you need to like listen to you know listen like listen to a Jamaican or like watch a Jamaican see how they do it and how they're resourceful. Yeah, it's about zero waste, isn't it? Everybody had to do it when they had to do it. Yeah. And your fourth food moment has to do with what we were just talking about with nose to tail. It's the oxtail nuggets. It's it's using bits of uh, the animal that actually we don't use enough of. Tell me why you chose this one. Because I adore oxtail like oxtail is probably one of my favorite things um and like to eat and it's so nice but my partner isn't that keen on it and my daughter's a bit kind of like she doesn't really like red meat so if i make a batch of oxtail then i'm left with often left with some and i'm a bit of a bad person when it comes to like leftovers like i i I will kind of just freeze them instantly because I know that I, by the next day I've kind of like lost interest and I have to like kind of regain. I, I probably eat too much of it on the first day for me to kind of yeah have sustained interest in it. So then I I, I froze it um, and then um, with the, with this leftover like like the butter beans and all kind of get it into and sort of press it down and um, and then just like cut it into cubes and and fry it and it just because of like the natural kind of. Um, the sort of gelatin in the oxtail, it kind of it melts together really nicely. So I shred it, um, pat it down, and, and then you can freeze it. So I've actually got some in my fridge waiting for me to fry, like, cube it in breadcrumbs, and then fry it. And they are so good, Julie. Like, I cannot overstate how tasty they are. And also, it's a way that my partner will eat them. And it was her that said, you should put this in the book. So I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> um, they're, they're just, they're really tasty. And like the texture, like the crispy exterior, the kind of like yielding, kind of melty interior. It's like oh, the perfect bite. Okay. Yeah. Motherland and motherhood. Um, you talk a lot in the introduction about your connection with food from your childhood. That kind of sense of displacement kind of gave you a visceral kind of feel for, for food. Has that connection with the motherland changed since you've been a mother yourself? Yeah, it has. So my daughter is um, like, it, so she's obsessed 
with Jamaica and um, she hasn't been yet. We're like, hoping to take her and um, and she is just like, if you ask where she's from, she says, she says Jamaica. And it's quite funny because she's like, she's quite sort of light skinned and at her nursery, there were quite a few sort of Jamaican heritage people working there and they loved it and they would just talk about Jamaica with her and obviously she would just, like try to hold her own in this conversation. And um, and she loves like, she loves planting. She gets really excited about planting. She also says that her favourite foods are like planting prawns and she's introduced something else to it. And she says prawns, but actually she doesn't always eat prawns, but like plantain, she'll happily just gorge in it. She loves it. And, um, and, I, and I try to tell her the stories about Jamaican food. And then I, I guess because of like the environment, like, like as a family, like we never sort of spoke about kind of, um, like I'd hear about the food and stuff, but we never really talk about racism or kind of like other issues surrounding kind of like Jamaican identity in Britain. And so it kind of, and I think it's like a sign of the times that we're living in where I tried to almost give like a full story, you know, because it's, I think it's important to understand the whole story. And, um, and, and she's quite immersed in sort of like Jamaica, Jamaican identity, like loves like going to look at her globe and like, you know, like sort of like talking about Jamaica, where it is on the globe and just um, and, and seeing like photos of it and, and, and stuff like that. Once you've done a huge book like this, I mean, you've basically sort of plunged into the history of a place that, you know, had such a huge impact on, on your life. Will you stay as that Jamaican storyteller? Um, or will your love of history kind of push you forward to explore other foods by rooting yourself so completely in your motherland? Does that stereotype you or does it set you free? Um, I think it for, like, for me, I guess it. Um, I don't think it was stereotype because I've always done so much, so many different things, and, and my influences are kind of they are they're, they're quite broad. And well, that's why I asked. I wondered if you know now this is such a sort of signature statement. I wondered if that has kind of entrapped you in some way. I don't think so because I think even when it with my recipe writing, like sometimes I'll talk about Jamaican heritage um, uh, food or write recipes that are kind of rooted in, in Jamaica's ingredients. But then other times, right, and I write recipes for BBC Good Food and. And, and for other outlets, and, and I kind of sometimes it's Jamaican and sometimes it's not. I, I would like to think that because this book has been written, like I, I am, I, I think for so long, we like people, like people of colour, operated almost on a one in, one out. Like there's only ever space for one person to tell these stories. And you know, Riaz and I have told our stories now. And then uh, Marie Mitchell, she's going to be publishing her book in 2024. Kin talking about like the kind of connection between different um, different Caribbean islands. Uh, like Keisha um, Sakara, she's also kind of writing a, a book about uh, Caribbean food um, and the Oliver's got her book coming out next year so I think there's just um, like uh, uh, you know we're getting to tell our stories I, I, I would love for say people maybe even born in Jamaica like like Maureen Tyne whose food is like my favourite in, 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 in London um, to uh, look she's been talking about maybe writing a, a cookbook and that would be nice it would be nice for because there's this thing about writing cookbooks as as well you you will know that you have to have like the kind of the social media following or like there must be a, like it's not just about your ability as a, a a chef or as a cook or as a writer that gets you a book deal it's like all these other things and i would like say jamaican born people to be able to talk about the the, the food of, of of jamaica and be able to write cookbooks because i think there's so much space and it's been so unexplored for me as a writer i mean i've got an idea for like my next book i just need to kind of get over having written motherland because it was so tiring before i could even like think about setting pen to paper again um but I've got an idea uh, which kind of maybe will take in elements of like Jamaican cuisine, but is actually like more kind of a lot broader. And it's about another passion of mine. So 
Um, yeah, so we will we will see. We'll like watch this space. I I, I think I'm going to still be in a place where I can write about lots of different things, but I will always happily come back to talking or writing about Jamaican food because there is there is still so much more to say about it. Thanks for listening. You can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com to find out all about my supper clubs and follow me on Instagram. I'm at foodjillysmith. I'll see you next week. <laughs>